Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. President Trump says everyone in America is loaded with money. If you believe that, I have a giant melting Danish-owned island to sell you. The lead starts right now. Breaking news, the first two Muslim women in Congress who were barred from visiting Israel speaking in moments. What will the so-called squad have to say to President Trump? Apologies and promises. Senator Elizabeth Warren tackles the controversy over her self-proclaimed Native American heritage head-on after President Trump promises to revive a racist slur to attack her. One of Warren's 2020 opponents is here to react to that. Plus, a mysterious blast, fears of a doomsday weapon, and now radiation stations are going silent. How do you say cover-up in Russian? Welcome to The Lead. I'm John Berman, in for Jake Tapper today, and we do start with the politics lead. Any moment now, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar will step to the microphone. Together for the first time since Israel banned their visit over their support for an economic boycott against Israel. Now, that ban came less than an hour after President Trump suggested it. Israel agreed to lift some restrictions for Congresswoman Tlaib, who wanted to visit her grandmother in the West Bank, but she declined to go, saying a visit under oppressive conditions stood against everything she believed in. Now, both women are back to square one, protesting Israel and taking on President Trump. Seen as Ryan Young, live in Minneapolis, where the two women are holding a news conference. Ryan, what's the new position of these two congresswomen? Yeah, John, that'll be the big question. Excuse the hushed voice. I'm sort of standing in the middle of the news conference, and we know that in the next few minutes this should start. It'll be the first time we ask them significant questions about this. Of course, will they take the president straight on? He's been doing a lot of talking on Twitter. Will the women directly face those charges that he put out there? Remember, this happened less than an hour after that tweet where this was sort of rescinded. They couldn't go there. So, of course, you want to hear from these two women in the next 20 minutes or so. We'll be able to ask them the questions about what was their trip and details. What happened with this, and how do they feel emotionally? about this. So that's something that we'll be focused on in the next half hour or so when they walk in this room. John? All right, Ryan Young, please stand by for us. Let us know when they arrive. Also in our politics lead, the president playing the blame game, first denying the threat of a recession, which many economists warn is coming, then saying the economy is completely fine and maligning the Federal Reserve chairman he picked and Democrats, tweeting, our economy is very strong despite the horrendous lack of vision by Jay Powell and the Fed But the Democrats are trying to will the economy to be bad for the purposes of the 2020 election. CNN's Caitlin Collins has more on the president in attack mode. With the economy on his mind, President Trump is lashing out. I don't see a recession. Claiming economists who have said a recession isn't happening now but could be on the horizon are wrong. Most of them are saying we're not going to have a recession. It's not just the president who is downplaying the pessimistic forecast. His own aides have convinced him the media is overplaying fears of an economic downturn. It's nice to see the media finally cover the Trump economy. You seem to cover it only when you can use the Sesame Street word of the day, recession. But as Trump claimed today on Twitter that the U.S. economy is the best in the world, 
He's also preparing a scapegoat just in case, blaming his hand-picked Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell. Claiming the Democrats are trying to will the economy into a recession and calling for a big federal rate cut, even though some experts say his trade policies are to blame. Lately, Trump has turned to economic hardliners like trade advisor Peter Navarro for advice, who disputed Sunday that the bond market is flashing signs of a possible recession. That's not technically an inversion. It's a flat curve, which is a very weak signal of any possibility. Navarro claiming the so-called yield curve inversion, which has preceded U.S. recessions for at least the last 40 years, isn't a good indicator, even though he's argued otherwise in his own books, claiming the curve is a powerful forecasting tool. The economy isn't the only thing Trump is watching. He also lashed out at his former communications director after he claimed he's forming a coalition of ex-cabinet members to speak out against Trump. I'm in the process of putting together a team of people that feel the exact same way that I do. Trump attacking Anthony Scaramucci as a highly unstable nut job he barely knew. Now, John, as these concerns about a recession are heating up and the White House is continuing to downplay them, we should note that the president's top economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, is going to hold a series of phone calls this week with business leaders, state officials, local officials to talk about the economy. And though the White House says these calls were long planned, it's hard to see how this doesn't come up. All right. Caitlin Collins for us in Washington. Caitlin, thanks so much. Let's talk more about this right now. Caitlin Dickerson with the New York Times. I want you to look at the factors that the president and his allies have blamed as a possible threat uh, on the economy here. Number one, the Federal Reserve Chair. Number two, the news media. Number three, China and other countries. The one thing he's not talking about is the effect of his own economic policies and whether or not they may be hurting the economy. Is that a surprise? No, I was I was going <laughs> to ask you the same thing. I mean, I, I don't think that it should come as a surprise. That's not the president's style of discussion. I think, you know, the question of how the economy is going to evolve, there, there is a big one, and we don't know. And so he's going to try to get ahead of it. He's going to try to talk on Twitter as much as possible to sort of hedges bets to make sure that if if there is, in fact, a recession, that blame is placed elsewhere. But if there isn't, that he can still claim a success and still take all the credit for the positives that the economy has seen over time. And so it's, it's a risky move, but it's one that's very well worn with the president. And so we'll just have to see if if his rhetoric can sort of stay ahead of where the actual story is. Rich, I'm not Rich Lowry, by the way, National Review. I'm not surprised that the president's advisors came out as strong as they did this weekend. You wouldn't expect a White House to say a recession is coming. It just doesn't happen that way. But they pushed back so hard. Is the reason for that that they see that a weakened economy is a mortal threat to the president's reelection? Well, certainly. I mean, a weak economy is a mortal threat to any president's reelection. And no president says, oh, this downturn is my fault. And every administration tries to talk up the economy. And Larry Kudlow is out there this weekend. I can tell you, knowing Larry for a very long time, he's an inveterate optimist. This yes. is what he would say about the American economy in almost any instance. But I think there are a couple of worries. One, obviously, the political effect. The other, the contention with China. Because the president assumed for a very long time he was playing with house money. The economy is so strong, it could uh, absorb any uh, downward uh, effect of tariffs, which don't just hurt the other guy, they hurt you. If he's no longer playing with house money and the economy is weakening, that makes it much harder to get any meaningful deal from China. Now, it's one thing to be optimistic. It's one thing to have glass half full views on where the economy is. It's another thing to use information that's wrong 
or to say things that aren't true, which is what Peter Navarro did with Jake over the weekend on State of the Union when he was saying that the effects of the tariffs are not hitting Americans at all. Just listen to that. The tariffs are, are hurting China. China is bearing the entire burden of the tariffs. So, Peter Beiner, the fact of the matter is you could say it's worth it for the tariffs to be hitting the American people. It's worth it if you're trying to push China to a certain end here. But to say they're not hitting Americans just isn't true. Of course not. I mean, Americans are paying more and Americans will continue to pay more. I think Moody's suggested that 300,000 jobs have already been lost because, remember, a lot of American companies are importing inputs from China. Right. And that makes the products they're selling more expensive, which means they have more trouble selling, which means they can employ fewer people. One of the reasons the Democrats in the state of Iowa, for instance, which is a big farm state, won two congressional seats in 2018 was because in farm states, the agricultural tariffs and the retaliation from China have already hit so hard. Trump knows this. This is why he's actually pulling back. The problem is he doesn't have a realistic strategy for actually winning this trade war. It's not even clear what he's asking the Chinese to do. And that's why this is an economic and I think a political fiasco as well. He's attacking the Fed chair, Jay Powell. What did he say? He said he has horrendous judgment. Right. Jess McIntosh was here with us as well. He said Anthony Scaramucci was a nut job. I suppose Jay, Jay Powell should be happy that he only got horrendous judgment right. and not a nut job there. But it is interesting that the way he chooses to attack criticism or people not doing the things he wants to do is to go right to the insult. Well, of course. And this is the problem with propaganda is that eventually it runs up with reality. So he can criticize everybody who suggests that the economy might be showing signs of slowing down. He can say that he can have his people come out and say that an inverted yield curve is not an inverted yield curve. But eventually the math actually happens and the propaganda sort of falls away. So if he's out there insulting everybody who is an expert in this field and propping up folks who may or may not be, um, you know, I, I think eventually the American people are going to see through it. They're already starting to feel it. As Peter was saying, they're paying more. He's talking about consumers having more money than they know what to do with. Usually American presidents don't call Americans consumers. And I don't know anybody who feels so financially secure that they're really excited he's getting all distracted on Twitter all day and not dealing with the economy. I'll say this about Trump and the Fed. No president should attack the Fed chairman, right. obviously. <laughs> but he was right that the Fed was um, going to tighten mm -hmm. too soon. And his view of the Federal Reserve and interest rates is more correct than what was the consensus Republican view during, during the Obama era, which is that if you're loose during a downturn, and uh, which you should be, that you're inevitably going to have runaway inflation. And many conservative economists said that. They're completely wrong. And Trump, is, his policy view, although you know, it's filtered through this right. prism of insult, is more correct than the Republican. Maggie Haberman and others reporting, though, that he doesn't even think the Fed should be independent. And that, of course, gets into that problem zone. To Anthony Scaramucci, one more time. Let me just read you what he wrote about the Anthony Scaramucci. Scaramucci is a highly unstable nutjob who was uh, with other candidates in the primary who got shellacked and unfortunately heated his way into my campaign. I barely knew him until his 11 days of gross incompetence made a fool of himself, bad on TV, <laughs> abused staff. That's the president's <laughs> version, okay? Anthony was on New Day this morning. This is what he said to Allison Camerata. I'm in the process of putting together a team of people that feel the exact same way that I do. This is not a never Trump situation. This is not uh, uh, just uh, screeching rhetoric. Uh, I've got to get some of these former cabinet officials in unity to speak up about it. They, they know it's a crisis. Now, Anthony Scaramucci has talked, Caitlin, about 
former cabinet officials, even current people inside the administration who feel the same way he does. But as of yet, none have come forward. Not under this current discussion and not with Anthony Scaramucci, no, but he really, I think, is part of a growing chorus of people who once had close ties to the president and who no longer do, but who now want to come out and say that, you know, he is unstable or that he's unable to do his job. But the problem that he has is credibility, is that people who've come forth like him, even John Kelly, former Secretary of Homeland Security and then Chief of Staff to President Trump, Michael Cohen, people who who have very close relationships with the president and then try to step back and say, actually, he's completely unstable and unable to do his job. They just don't have a whole lot of credibility and aren't able to change minds because their motivations are, are called into question. So far, it's Anthony Scaramucci, Joe Walsh, uh, also Mark Sanford, Peter but is that enough to pose a real threat from within the party to the president? Not, not to defeat him in a primary, but to bruise him. No, because they have no media ecosystem, right? So the media ecosystem that Trump voters are consuming um, is basically, you know, state propaganda, all pro-Trump all the time, right? And, and nothing that Scaramucci and these other guys are going to say are a surprise to anybody, right? The only surprise is why it took them so right. long to realize this, right? From the day Trump, you know, even, even before the day Trump announced it was clear he was a racist and conspiracy theorist, right? That's been clear for literally decades. So I don't think these guys actually have a lot of credibility as the truth tellers about Donald Trump. All right, friends, stand by for a minute. We're waiting to hear from Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar together for the first time since Israel banned their visit. We'll bring it to you live. Then President Trump makes a completely false and frankly, completely ridiculous claim about the 2016 election. We will fact check it next. Any moment now, we will hear from Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. They are together in Minnesota, about to speak after Israel banned their visit. We'll bring you their statements live. And while we wait for those comments, the president sending an outrageous, patently false tweet claiming that Google manipulated the 2016 election. All right, hang on one second. Pause on that. This is the Congresswoman Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. To be uh, late, there was some uh, traffic detours. Um, I'm so glad to be here with my sister Rashid today. Um, today we're here to highlight the, before I actually start, we were supposed to have a couple of our, the other speakers. Are they in the room? Do you want to join yeah, us? Please come up. How are you? Thank you for coming. Thank you for everything. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for speaking up. Well, wonderful. Today we're here to highlight the human cost of the occupation and travel restrictions on Palestinians and others. As many of you know, I had planned to travel to Israel and Palestine to hear from individuals on the ground about the conflict so that I could be more informed as a member of Congress and as a member on the Foreign Affairs Committee. Contrary to many media reports and the statements of the Israeli Prime Minister, I plan to meet directly with members of the Knesset and Israeli security, along with Palestinian civil society groups, former IDF soldiers, Israel, Palestine, and international organizations, and United Nations officials. Leading up to the trip, I met with constituents holding a wide range of views on the conflict. 
all the activities on my trip had been done by members had been done by members of Congress in the past, including a nearly identical trip few years ago led by the very same Palestinian organization leading this trip. In addition to me and Rashida going on the trip, we were going to be joined by Stacy Plasquette from the Virgin Islands. The decision to ban me and my colleagues, the first, my colleague, the first two Muslim American women elected to Congress, is nothing less than an attempt by an ally of the United States to suppress our ability to do our jobs as elected officials. But this is not just about me. Netanyahu's decision to deny us entry might be unprecedented for members of Congress, but it is the policy of his government when it comes to Palestinians. This is the policy of his government when it comes to anyone who holds views that threaten the occupation a policy that has been edged on and supported by Trump's administration. That's because the only way to preserve unjust policy is to suppress people's freedom of expression, freedom of association, and freedom of movement. My colleague and I are not the only ones who are being denied the right to see for ourselves the reality on the ground on the West Bank. The Netanyahu government, for example, is currently trying to deport Omar Shakir, a human rights worker with Human Rights Watch, because he has reported on human rights conditions in the West Bank and Gaza. Last year, the Netanyahu government refused entry to American citizen Catherine Frank, Frank and my friend Vince Warren, who had arrived on a human rights mission. All of these actions have nothing to, do nothing to bring us closer to peace. In fact, they do the opposite. They maintain the occupation and prevent a solution to the conflict. Fortunately, we in the United States have a constructive role to play. We give Israel more than $3 million in aid every year. This is predicated on their being an important ally in the region and the only democracy in the Middle East. But denying visit to duly elected members of Congress is not consistent with being an ally and denying millions of people freedom of movement or expression or self-determination is not consistent with being a democracy. We must be asking, as Israel's ally, the Netanyahu government stop the expansion of settlements on Palestinian land and ensure full rights for Palestinians if we are to give them aid. These are not just my views. These are the views held by the range of experts, peace advocates on this issue. We know Donald Trump would love nothing more than to use this issue to pit Muslims and Jewish Americans against each other. The Muslim community and the Jewish community are being othered and made into the boogeyman by this administration. But, uh, but as we will hear today, 
people of, of all different faiths are coming together to speak up against the status quo in the region. I'm grateful for the solidarity shown by so many of my colleagues in Congress. I understand and appreciate the calls for members to avoid traveling to Israel until Rashida and I are allowed to go without condition. But it is my belief that as legislators, we have an obligation to see the reality there for ourselves. We have a responsibility to conduct oversight over our government's foreign policy and what happens with the millions of dollars we send in aid. So I would encourage my colleagues to visit, meet with the people we were going to meet with, see the things we were going to see, hear the stories we were going to hear. We cannot, we cannot let Trump and Netanyahu succeed in hiding the cruel reality of the occupation from us. So I call on all of you to go. The occupation is real, bearing, barring members of Congress from seeing it does not make it go away. We must end it together. Now it's with honor that I introduce my sister Rashida Tlaib, who has been so brave and resilient and someone um, who has deep connections to the region uh, and someone who I would have loved to, met, to have met um, her city, Rashida Tlaib. Thank you so much to my dear friend and colleague, uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, for inviting me to her district to join you all today. I am incredibly thankful for her leadership and strength through all uh, she has been dealing with uh, as a woman of color in Congress. I don't know how she does it sometimes, but the outpouring of support we have received from our constituents and supporters across the country shows us how important it is to keep fighting for justice. Today's, today, Reps Omar and Plaskett and I were supposed to be on a congressional trip and delegation to the Palestine and Israel. And such delegations are common occurrence for members of Congress. Earlier this month, in fact, 71 other members of Congress traveled to Israel seemingly without incident. What is not common occurrence is members of Congress being barred from entering a country on these fact-finding missions unless they agree to strict set of rules curtailing their rights or being required to submit their itineraries for stop-by-stop pre-approval. History does have a habit of repeating itself. I learned this week that a former member of Congress, Congressman Charles C. Diggs Jr., was denied entry into apartheid South Africa in 1972. He was also the representative for the 13th Congressional District in Michigan. I was born and raised in the beautiful Detroit, where many of my African-American teachers taught me about the realities of oppression and justice and the need to speak up and take action. Growing up in a city that has been at the center of many social justice movements for civil rights, labor rights, and equality, and absorbing those lessons has shaped who I am today and drives me to push for peace and justice for the Palestinian and Israeli people. As a young girl visiting Palestine to see my grandparents and extended family, I watched as my mother had to go through dehumanizing checkpoints. Even though she was a United States citizen and proud American, 
I was there when my city was in a terrible car accident. And my cousins and I cried so she could have access to the best hospitals, which were in Jerusalem. I remember shaking with fear when checkpoints appeared in the small village of Bet Aur Foka. Tanks and guns everywhere. I remember visiting East Jerusalem with my then husband and him escorting, escorted off the bus, although he was a United States citizen, just so security forces could harass him. All I can do as my city's granddaughter, as the, as the granddaughter of a woman who lives in occupied territory, is to elevate her voice by exposing the truth the only way I know how. As my Detroit public schools teachers taught me by humanizing the pain of oppression. Our delegation trip included meetings with Israeli veterans who were forced to participate in military occupation. They also desperately want peace and self-determination for their Palestinian neighbors. They could have shed light into injustices of raids, shootings, demolitions, and child detention. The delegation would have seen firsthand why walls are destructive, not productive. They could have asked the people in Bethlehem how walls cut people off away from economic opportunities, from a way to live, and do psychological damage that lasts forever. All I can do as her granddaughter is help humanize her and the Palestinian people's plight. I know that when we can finally see them as deserving of human dignity, everyone who lives there will be able to live in peace. It is unfortunate that Prime Minister Netanyahu has apparently taken a page out of Trump's book and even direction from Trump to deny this opportunity. And yes, while folks are shocked that this happened to us, but today we will hear from folks who will help show the reality for many who have been barred from going to, into Israel not to be even able to reach the Palestinian people. They are fellow Americans who cannot visit their families or their loved ones. They should be deep, all of us should be deeply disturbed. All of us Americans should be deeply disturbed. And with that, I then thank you so much uh, to my co uh, colleague, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, for helping humanize the Palestinian people. Thank you, Rashida. Um, <clears throat> next, we will hear from uh, Lana. Berwaki, Palestinian-American and a Minnesota resident who has never been able to return to her family's homeland of Palestine. Thank you, Ilhan. Hello. <clears throat> Thank you to Representatives Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib for inviting me to speak today. I was asked to share some of my personal story. I'm Lana Barkawi. I'm um, the daughter of Palestinian immigrants to this country. I live in Minneapolis with my husband and my two children, and although I am Palestinian, I have never been able to visit Palestine. My story is like that of so many people who live in the diaspora caused by the occupation of Palestine by Israel. Palestine is a home I have All right, you've been listening to Congresswoman Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib uh, explain their side of how they refused entry into Israel by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu after President Trump pushed Netanyahu not to allow them in. Um, back here with the panel right now, Jess, let me just ask you first, what did they get from this, these two members of Congress, by publicizing this 
this way today? I, mean, I think that I think that they get their second best option. They wanted to go to Israel. I think they wanted to have this this trip and they would much rather be coming back to share the information that they had gleaned from the various people that they were trying to meet. So I think this is this is definitely not a political win for them. And I don't think either one of them would characterize it that way. But it is really unusual that we get to hear the voices of Palestinian Americans in our political discourse. We have never had a Palestinian American in Congress. So the fact that we are able to have this conversation with these voices, with these messengers who have this lived diversity of experience that we've simply never seen in leadership, I think that actually can't be overstated. We've had a very monolithic approach to the way we talk about Israel, which has been a, a really big challenge that has been faced globally, and America has a particular role in it. And we have done so in the absence of Palestinian Americans. So I, I think the, the upside to any of this, if there can be one, is that we get to have that conversation now. I want to go on the phone now to Oren Lieberman, our correspondent who is in Israel right now. And Oren, I'm glad we have you because those members of Congress had very severe criticism for the Israeli government and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And they also said some things that were controversial. Among other things, they claimed they were going to meet with members of the Knesset. I know there's some dispute about whether, in fact, that is the case. What can you tell us about the Israeli government version here? Well, we haven't gotten a response yet from the Israeli government, but I suspect we'll start hearing one soon, if not from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu himself, who's currently on an official visit to Ukraine, and certainly some of the other members of his government. Uh, there were some reports here that they were going to meet with uh, a member of the Joint Arab List, certainly a member of Israel's Knesset uh, from that party. They were also going to meet with uh, PLO Executive Committee member Hadam Ashrawi, it's worth noting that it was Hadam Ashrawi's uh, organization, not as a political organization, but that organization that arranged the trip. So although the initial planning of the trip appeared to be civil service societies, um, non-government uh, NGOs, uh, as well as peace activists and human rights organizations, they were going to meet, um, at least had plans to meet, a Knesset member from Israel, as well as a, a PLO politician in Hadam Ashrawi. All right, Oren, stand by for a second. Back here with Peter Beiner. Peter, that organization that he's talking about is called MIFTA, which is an organization that in the past has published articles on their website using phrases like blood libel, which in the past on their website has praised Palestinians who've carried out attacks against Israelis. And this was the organization that was involved with the planning of that trip. Now, you heard Johan Omar refer to that obliquely in her statement, but is that a type of organization that you should be connected with as a U.S. member of Congress? Palestinians don't have to be saints in order to deserve the basic rights that all of us take for granted, right? Mifta has said things that I disagree with. They made an anti-Semitic statement that they apologized for. The point is, when you go there, I say this as an American Jew. My children go to Jewish day school. I lead services in an Orthodox synagogue. Judaism at the center of my life. The first time I went to spend time with Palestinians in the West Bank, it was a shattering experience. The only thing I could imagine would be similar for Americans would be going to visit the Jim Crow South. When you see people living under the control of the state with no rights, they cannot become citizens. They cannot vote for the control for the state that controls their lives. They do not have free movement. They need a pass to move from city to city. They live under a military legal system. The consequences are more brutal than we can imagine sitting here. So do I agree with MIFTA? Of course not. I had a close friend who was killed in a suicide bombing. But Palestinians don't. You could have made the same argument if you went to visit SNCC and said, oh, they were connected with communists. Some of their people have made anti-white statements. The point is, what Ilhan Omar said is the, tr is the most important point. People need to go and see for themselves. I've never seen anyone who's gone and seen for themselves and not been transformed by the experience. I, 
That, I think, is true and apolitical, that it is worth going to Israel, worth going to the West Bank, so you can see for yourself, you get a real sense of the situation on the ground. Rich Lowry, on the subject of MIFTA, the other side of that is that there has been a congressional trip that was led by MIFTA before, and the Israeli government let it happen. Now, I know it was before the actual law was passed, but they didn't need a law to keep people out if they didn't want to, but they allowed it to happen before. Now they're not in claiming it's because of this organization. Yeah, well, obviously the proximate cause here was the Trump tweet, which highlighted this and made it a major issue. But there is a law that allows Israel to ban foreigners who support the BDS movement to isolate uh, and delegitimize Israel. It's been not applied against members of Congress before. It's been applied against French politicians, against EU politicians. But these are strong supporters of the BDS movement. They are not honest brokers. We wouldn't afford a white nationalist organization the, uh, uh, the le- leeway that Peter is giving this organization. Oh, they're not saints. This is an anti-Semitic uh, group that supported terrorism, supports blowing up innocent civilians and children. And no matter what you think of the uh, dispute between the Palestinians and uh, Israel, that is an illegitimate tactic that no one should associate with advocates of. You want a quick response to that, Peter? Then I want to bring. Sure. Hanan Shroy is actually very well known as a nonviolent activist, been a critic of the Palestinian Authority, one of the most important Palestinian feminists. There are many Palestinians who believe that Palestinians have the use, right to use violence because of the daily violent oppression they feel. I disagree with them. I believe in only nonviolent protests. But the point is, every time any Palestinian leader or any Palestinian organization tries to expose what happens, this is exactly what happens. People what, try to discredit is... them because they don't want to talk about the real issue. The real issue is an absolutely indefensible denial of basic human rights. What's that have to do with supporting terrorism? I mean, it, no, no one has any problem with harshly criticizing Israel. That's fine. But you don't support blowing up innocent people. That's just a, a, a bottom line uh, no, of, uh, something of, we all of should agree not, but the on. The purpose behind focusing on this is to try to distract attention from the reality on the ground, which is funded by American you, tax dollars. Our tax dollars this, blow up the homes of people who cannot get permits to build because they're non-citizens under military would law. Would this be your standard for a white nationalist organization? These oh, they are, just say, not, they say some Hanana, racist I, I things. Know, Hanana, they support sorry, some sorry, terrorism. Sorry, with all due respect, that's okay. you have not You're been there and me. seen this on the ground. I, I know Hanana Shrawi. She is nothing close to a white nationalist. She is someone seeking but so, freedom. But then from why does the organization why does the organization publish things supporting terrorism? Rich, I disagree with violent resistance. No, but why, why but do they? It is because because a lot of Palestinians believe that because they are subject to daily violence of a system which denies them basic rights, they have the right to respond violently. I disagree with them. But an African-American who supported violence against the United States under slavery or Jim Crow, that did not excuse their denial of basic rights because I disagree with the tactic they were using to resist it. I mean, it's again, it's fine to harshly criticize Israel and the occupation, but I don't think anyone's be associated with a group that supports Terrorism. And this isn't black or white. I mean, they publish this stuff. No one's many, forcing many them to publish Many, years ago, stuff. there were certain you, statements again, on their not... website. Hanan Nasrawi has devoted her life as a nonviolent activist to opposing an oppression which none of us doesn't do, which does not accord with the values that any of us believe in as Americans. So she doesn't control her own organization and what it publishes? Rich, why don't you try spending a little bit of time focusing on the fact that almost $4 billion of U.S. aid is used to put children you're in the detention. One, you're, you're the one distracting right. from the issue. I'm asking you. No, no, no. You, this I'm is the issue. You're distracting you're from the issue because and, uh, National Review, just, shouting just, and just as National that, Review defended apartheid, and just as you defended segregation, you now defend Israel's oppression of Palestinian basic rights. I, it's a tradition for you guys. Look, and if an organization supports terrorism, 
that organization should be on beyond the pale. And when I don't, Palestinians I don't see why protest nonviolently, when they protest nonviolently, yeah. right, so you, so you discredit saying, them as well. So you're saying that in some sense justifies terrorism? Of course it doesn't justify terrorism. I've said again and again I disagree with terrorism. What I'm saying is you're trying to distract from the real issue. The real issue is American complicity in the denial of basic Palestine. All right, we're going to leave this, guys. What the content of your opposition mean we're going to leave this there. this organization? Rich, please go there yourself. We're going to leave that there. Rich, Peter, guys, stand by. Much more ahead, including a look at President's Trump, President Trump's patently false tweet about the 2016 election. Stick around. When our politics lead, the president sending an outrageous, patently false tweet claiming that Google manipulated the 2016 election. This is what he wrote. Wow, report just out. Google manipulated from 2.6 million to 16 million votes for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. This was put out by a Clinton supporter, not a Trump supporter. Google should have sued. My victory was even bigger than thought. So just to be clear, there is no evidence Google manipulated votes. Joining me now is CNN's Daniel Dale, who's fact-checked just about every word the president has said since he's come to office. Daniel, what study is the president even talking about here? So, John, he's talking about a study by a psychologist named Robert Epstein. And the problem with his tweet is that he's not only referring to a study whose conclusions are disputed, he's misdescribing the study itself. I spoke to Epstein a little bit earlier this afternoon. He said that he never alleged Google was, quote, manipulating votes. What he alleged was that bias in Google's search results uh, may have affected as many as 10.4 million votes, between 2.6 million and 10.4 million votes in the 2016 election. He made clear he doesn't have evidence these votes were affected, but he said it might be up to about 10 million. So the 16 million number, it was conjured up by the president. Now, there are problems with the, the study itself, John. It's not just Trump's description. What Epstein did was ask people, basically a random selection of Americans, he crowdsourced this, to rate the alleged bias of the results that came up when they searched various election-related things on Google, Bing, and Yahoo, three search engines. So if it was pro-Trump, it would get a, a five. If it was pro-Clinton, it would get a minus five. And then he came up with a calculation of alleged bias. Now, the problem here that, as many uh, political scientists have pointed out, is that by this calculation, a search engine that featured many articles by far-right website Breitbart, for example, which is reliably pro-Trump, would be rated as... as uh, uh, less biased against Clinton and more favorable towards Trump than a website that features, say, the New York Times or CNN. And people who observe journalism, mainstream readers, uh, know that, you know, an investigative report by the New York Times is worth more in informational value than uh, a puff piece from Breitbart. The second problem here is that Epstein presented no evidence that even if there were bias, votes were actually affected. What he did was look at his previous studies about elections in Australia and India, look at how votes were allegedly affected there, then apply his conclusions to the U.S. presidential election. And I spoke to a prominent political scientist, Michael McDonald, who studies elections, and said, well, American presidential elections are different beasts. Even if, you know, people in the Indian election may have been affected one way, it's a different ballgame in an American mm. presidential election where people know a whole lot about the candidates. So uh, the president misdescribed the study, and the study itself has problems. Daniel Dale, fact-checking the president as always. Thank you very, very much. So she likes to boast that she has a plan for everything. This time, Senator Elizabeth Warren's new plan is a little bit personal. That's next. Plus, presidential candidate Senator Kirsten Gillibrand here to respond. 
In our 2020 lead, Senator Elizabeth Warren today directly confronted an issue she has struggled with for years, her past claims of Native American ancestry. This morning, Warren apologized to the Native American Presidential Forum and admitted she has made mistakes, as CNN's MJ Lee reports. Elizabeth Warren attempting to turn the page on the controversy over her family ancestry. The Massachusetts senator attending a major gathering of tribal leaders and activists in Iowa, where she began her remarks with an apology. Like anyone who's being honest with themselves, I know that I have made mistakes. I am sorry for harm I have caused. I have listened and I have learned a lot. And I am grateful for the many conversations that we've had together. Questions over Warren's past claims to Native American ancestry have swirled for years, going back to her first Senate campaign against Republican Scott Brown. Professor Warren claimed that she uh, was a Native American, a person of color, and as you can see, she's not. The Oklahoma native described herself as Native American in numerous personnel documents early in her teaching career, a revelation that sparked furious backlash. Last fall, Warren responding to the ongoing criticism by releasing the results of a DNA test, which showed distant Native ancestry. But my family history is my family history. That decision was widely panned as insensitive and offensive, including by some tribal groups. The senator ultimately apologized. I am also sorry for not being more mindful of this uh, decades ago. Tribes and only tribes determine tribal citizenship. As Warren climbs in the polls, President Trump showing no signs of letting up on his criticism of Warren, repeatedly using the nickname Pocahontas as a racial slur. We'll have to hit Pocahontas very hard again if she does win. Warren using today's platform to address issues critical to tribal communities, like missing and murdered indigenous women. Over and over, I'm struck by women who go missing and it doesn't make a headline for a week, for a month, women who are murdered, Native women, and it never makes a headline. And releasing an extensive plan to address the community's needs last week with Native American Congresswoman Deb Holland, who's endorsed her campaign. Elizabeth knows she will be attacked, but she's here to be an unwavering partner in our struggle because that is what a leader does. Now, John, an important update about that controversial DNA test video. Over the weekend, the campaign told us that that video would eventually be removed from the Warren campaign's website. As of this afternoon, it is gone as a part of the website's revamp. Just another sign that the Warren campaign is trying to put this blunder uh, behind it. And speaking to some of the tribal leaders here at this conference today, they also say that continued talk about this controversy does not serve their community, and they really would prefer to keep talking about policies. John. All right, MJ Lee Forrest, thank you very much for that report and terrific reporting all weekend long on this. Joining me now is presidential candidate Senator Kirsten Gillibrand from New York. Senator, thank you so much for being with us. Do you think Senator Warren's apology is enough for Native American and Democratic voters overall? Well, that's just simply a question for them. And, and, and you, you choose not to weigh into it at all? I think the fact that she showed humility, uh, recognized that she was wrong, apologized and is leading from a different position shows courage. You have been calling for the Department of Justice to investigate Eric Gardner's death since 2014 when a grand jury decided not to indict then NYPD officer Daniel Pantaleo. Today, 
It was announced by the police commissioner here in New York that he would be fired, not receive his pension. What's your reaction to that? I think I think it took far too long. Uh, he should have been fired right away. There wasn't a lot left to know. Uh, we saw it on video. He used an illegal chokehold and he should have been fired right away. Um, now, maybe the family gets the smallest measure of justice. Uh, but I have to say, um, it took way too long. Uh, on the issue of guns, you said you would support last week a mandatory buyback program for assault weapons. Today, you said, quote, if it's just in your home and you're not using it or buying and selling it, there's no harm there. How do you jive those two issues there? If you support a mandatory buyback program, how do you then let people keep some guns that you would otherwise what buy I, back? What I believe is that uh, assault rifles need to be illegal, uh, that they should not be available for purchase or sale. Large magazines should also be banned. And we have a federal regulatory framework for weapons of war that aren't available uh, for anyone to buy. It's requiring a registry. It requires fingerprinting. It requires uh, you to have a background check. Uh, you can have that regulatory framework for any kind of assault weapon. But if you're going to ban assault weapons, the best way to get them off the street is to have a buyback. Your buyback is one of your strongest mm -hmm. tools to offer money for those who own those weapons. But what you want to make illegal is the purchase, the sale, and the use of military-style assault weapons. Because the truth is, we don't want to live in a country where children are afraid to do back-to-school shopping at a Walmart. We shouldn't mm -hmm. accept living in a country where our kids are taught shelter-in-place drills. They should be doing their multiplication drills. Just to so, be clear, I think we all agree on that, Senator. Uh, the issue is, though... What you're describing seems to be a voluntary buyback program. If you already owned a legally purchased assault weapon, you would not require that you sell it back to the government? It might not be necessary. And so, of course, all your options stay on the table. But if you can ban assault weapons and large magazines and have a buyback program and get weapons off the streets, you might accomplish your end without it. All right. You said yesterday, this is the subject where we're listening to Congresswoman Irhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib moments ago, you said you think Israel should be held accountable for banning uh, those members of Congress from visiting. So if you were president, what would holding Israel accountable on that issue look like? Israel is our greatest friend in the Middle East. Uh, our national security goals are fundamentally aligned. Uh, they are a thriving democracy, and we are friends. I think you should be able to have frank conversations with your friends when they're wrong. And I think banning two members of Congress from visiting your country is so short-sighted and harmful. And for President Trump to egg on Prime Minister Netanyahu is shocking. Uh, our president should not be suggesting that women who are serving in Congress today should be denied mm -hmm. the right to go to Israel. And then when permission is given, restrict their speech. I think it is very harmful. Um, I just have 10 seconds left. It really is 10 seconds. You said, though, you want to hold Israel accountable. Would there be a sanction for that decision under a President Gillibrand administration? I think you would start by having a very serious conversation that mm -hmm. if Israel expects our support, which they are given readily uh, to make sure they have military qualitative edge, which I lead mm -hmm. in the U.S. Senate to fund their programs to protect against missiles, that they should respect 
the notion that for Congress to no. offer this kind of support, we have an obligation to uh, visit and to understand the security um, concerns Senator, firsthand. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.